Take your Bibles, if you have them with me this evening, and turn to Mark chapter 1. Last time we were together, we considered and indeed explored the purpose that Christ has and the purpose which then has been handed down to us. To carry the authority of Christ to the hearers through sound doctrine. For how can they hear, the scriptures tell us, without a preacher? And as I pass this purpose through the filter of our church and our character, I don't think this is the area of the commission of Christ and of the character of Christ that we necessarily struggle with as a church. We are a people who carry a philosophical uh, a philosophy of loyalty, put it that way, to, and by God's grace and obedience to, the commission to carry the word of God and to put it in the ears of men. We are a church that desires to share the gospel. We are a church that uh, loves to see missionaries come through who are doing exactly that and who are called to do that. We are a church uh, where, well, very, very much so, uh, that's the whole essence of how we've arranged the church, right? The pulpit in our church is right here in the center. Uh, you will notice if you were to go to a Lutheran church or a Catholic church in the area that you would not find the pulpit at the center of the auditorium of the sanctuary and that instead you would find at the the center of their sanctuary, uh, the communion table, with the pulpit standing off to one side. And this is by design. This is the way it, this is the way it is designed intentionally because in those denominations, the sacraments are, in fact, the center of worship. Among evangelical denominations, however, the thing that we put at the center of our worship is the pulpit, and that for a reason, right? To this end, we have generally no problem with the reflected purpose of Christ in ministry to carry his authority through sound doctrine into the ears of hearers, to carry the gospel, to carry his truths, to live out the authority of Christ in our lives through our own obedience to sound doctrine is not necessarily our struggle either. Obviously, I say that in a philosophical level, we all have our struggles with obeying Christ. We all have our struggles with being bold to preach the gospel, but that is not where our heart struggles as it would relate to our loyalty to the things of Scripture. This week is where we get to where our movement might struggle a little bit more. Our church might struggle a little bit more. We may not necessarily struggle with purpose. We might struggle a little bit more with heart. Jesus has been going throughout Galilee in Mark 1, primarily preaching, casting out devils, calling men unto spiritual rightness with him. So we might presume Jesus is in some synagogue as we pick up here in Mark 1, verse 40. The Bible had told us that uh, Jesus had, um, uh, excuse me, um, that, that, that they had found Jesus and he had been praying and they said, all men seek for thee. And he said, let us go into the next towns, in verse 38, that I may preach there also, for therefore came I forth. And the Bible says he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee. And so we would presume that he's probably in some sort of synagogue setting here, or at least going between those synagogues, as we pick up in Mark 1, verse 40, where the Bible says this, And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean." So the Bible says a leper came to Jesus, and first let's talk about what a leper is. Leprosy is a disease of the skin that tends to afflict peoples and cultures which are not particularly clean. 
Now, the culture of Israel and of Rome were uh, generally clean, at least compared to the other cultures of the day, uh, but uh, so is the United States, and yet if we were to go to the shady underbelly of various cities uh, around this country, we would find uh, that there's uh, full, that these cities and such are full of diseases, which you and I, in our general place of civilized separation, uh, would never even imagine would exist uh, in, in, in places where things ought to generally be clean. And so leprosy was not necessarily something that we would expect to have been uh, uh, dramatically prevalent in those areas, particularly in Israel, where they had many cleanliness laws and that they followed those laws quite uh, religiously, no pun intended there. But leprosy is spoken of quite a bit in the Old Testament, at least within the law. And that because it was a disease which is contracted by human interaction. And once it was contracted, at this time in history, there was no cure. The disease would eat away at a person's body until the limbs would fall off and eventually uh, their organs would fail and they would die. To this end, leprosy, as we understand it from history, would effectively kill people twice. say, well, pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, because leprosy was a socially contracted disease, the moment a person was confirmed to have leprosy, they were driven away from society. They lived in encampments outside of cities. They were withheld from human interaction and from human touch. Now, we all lived through the COVID era. Your son accepting, of course, Nathaniel. Uh, he did not live through the COVID era, uh, era but uh, he's probably not listening to me anyway. The rest of us lived through the COVID era. And perhaps you recall the unsettling and unnatural early days of that virus when our government was lying to us about COVID's nature and demanding thus that humans could not interact one with another, even seeing each other's faces. Perhaps you recall the unnatural way that this felt not being comfortable shaking a person's hand and not being comfortable giving someone a hug. Now imagine that if you gave that loved one a big hug or shook their hand, you were condemning them to a life of pain and eventual death. Imagine being an outcast of society because of that. Back to COVID. Remember how our, our medical establishments reacted to that, perhaps still are in some senses. Recall that thousands of people lay in hospital beds, some dying of any number of illnesses or diseases, and their loved ones were forced to stay at home while they died alone. And we think of the tremendous injustice and travesty of all of that. Now imagine that if your loved one came and saw you, you might be condemning them to, their, to your same death. That's what... We thought at the time, but wasn't necessarily the case. That is what was the case with leprosy. Was it immediate and inevitable that a person who interacted with another would contract leprosy? No. But was the risk very high and was the danger um, immense? Yes, it was. So you're in constant pain and you're being killed slowly. And you have no one to comfort you. And that was leprosy. To this end, the leper has throughout the scriptures created a perfect picture of sin, has it not? A disease which eats away at you slowly, separates you from the relationship with God that humanity needs the most, 
And if the sinner is not healed by God, he dies in that separation and spends eternity in the flames of darkness. Now, considering this state, you can imagine the kind of shock and scandal it was for the leper to come near anybody. To even find his way into civilized society. Now, we make some speculation here. If Jesus is in a synagogue, this is really, really out of sorts. If he's going between cities, between towns, between synagogues, we might say it makes a little bit more sense. But this leper, however he comes to Jesus, is coming to Jesus, and no doubt there are people around Jesus. But this leper, he's deeply aware of the desperate state of his own condition. And also, take note of this, for the first time in his leprous life, this leper is also deeply aware of the possibility of a reversal of the death sentence that was in himself. This leper, for the first time in his life, is aware of the possibility that he might be able to be relieved from the death sentence that is in him. To this end, the manner of his coming is perhaps best described as humble. Notice the words that are used to express this man's disposition toward Christ. The word beseech here is actually an interesting one. It carries the idea of comfort, but also of seeking comfort. And that is what this man is doing here. He has heard of Jesus. He probably hasn't heard much of Jesus' teachings um, because he wasn't going to be around anywhere where, Jesus, where he could hear Jesus' teachings. He wasn't going to be around the people because he was a leper. But he had no doubt heard of, of Jesus and no doubt had heard of the healings that Jesus had done. So this man flees to Jesus for comfort in the midst of affliction. Now the other word we find here is kneeling. That when he came to Jesus, he lowered himself before the Christ. Him having identified Christ's power, but perhaps more in line with what we understand from Mark, him having identified Christ's authority. And what did he do with that identification? He lowered himself before it. And the leprous man sort of makes a request. And I say he sort of makes a request because the statement that the leprous man makes is more like just a statement, that it is necessarily a request isn't it? He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Do you see the faith here? The man does not for one moment say, can you make me clean? His question is not about whether or not Jesus is able, whether he has the power or whether he has the authority. His question is whether or not Jesus would be willing. And this is not uncommon. This is not an uncommon fear in the hearts of men. When I sit across from men and women at the jail every week as a chaplain, there are those who have absolutely no interest in being helped. They do not know that they have a need. They are dying uh, and they are, have that death sentence in themselves that is condemnation for their sin, but they do not see it. They do not know it. They, uh, they are oblivious and apathetic to the need. Then there are those uh, who know they have a need but have no idea that they can be redeemed. 
They have no concept of that redemption. Perhaps even after they are told of the possibility of that redemption, they do not imagine that it could happen. They do not believe that Christ has the power. They do not believe that Christ has the authority. Or they do not believe that Christ's way is the way, perhaps just yet. But then there's another group. And that group has lived lives of such tragedy or lives of such evil that though they know that Jesus is the Savior, they wonder whether or not that Savior would ever be willing to reach out and save someone like them. How could someone save someone so broken as me? How could someone save someone as evil as me? And that seems to be the manner of what this man presents. It does not seem as though this man is confused about whether or not Jesus has the capability. But the question is this, are you willing, Jesus? And to that, let's look at Jesus' answer in verse 41. And Jesus, moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him and saith unto him, I will, be thou clean. The Bible says Jesus is moved by this man's appeal. He obviously knows this man is sick, that he is thus ceremonially unclean, but he doesn't stand aloft. He doesn't stand separated from him. In fact, Jesus does the unthinkable here. Jesus doesn't look at that man with compassion, take a step backwards and say, be healed. Instead, Jesus is very intentional here. He puts forth his hand and he touches this leper. Now, we don't know anything about this leper. Maybe he had only contracted the disease yesterday. Maybe because of that, there was only a small patch of skin that was a problem. Maybe it wasn't necessarily oozing or anything yet. Uh, maybe his, his, the, the degree to which he was um, uh, contagious would, would have been very minimal at this point. Um, maybe this was not actually something that was dramatic or, or, or as the word I used, unthinkable. Maybe it's, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, there's just a patch on his shoulder and nobody knows about it yet and whatever. Maybe. But it's also possible that this man had been a leper for months or years. How long had it been since this man had felt human touch? How long had it been since this man had been touched with compassion? And we certainly know Jesus knew his condition. And Jesus, the Bible says, was moved with compassion. And in this compassion, what Jesus did was touch him. And in this, he answered the man's questioning faith. Not about whether Jesus could heal, but about whether Jesus was willing. So Jesus responded by touching this man, and he said, I will, I am willing, be thou clean. And so I think as far as the book of Mark is concerned, we could comfortably call this the first true insight into the heart of Jesus in his ministry our Savior is not just healing. We, we've talked about his purpose, right? We talked about that last week. His purpose was to share the gospel. He healed. He cast out demons. But every time it was questioned about what he was doing, he said, I've got to go preach some more. I've got to go tell more people about this thing, about this truth, about this reality, about this hope, about the kingdom. But we hadn't really seen yet the heart of Christ. 
For the first time in this book, we see the compassion that touches the heart of our Savior as he sees a man who is in a state, a condition which he cannot fix himself. And our Savior reaches out and touches him because he is willing to see him saved. And I hope you see the analogy in all of this. I hope you see the analogy of Jesus touching him. I hope you see why it is Jesus chose to touch him. I hope you see that this was intentional because this man was afflicted with a disease, a communicable disease, and Jesus reached out and touched him. That this disease was a death sentence, but Jesus reached out and touched him. That this man saw the authority of Christ and he, he appealed to Christ, not that Christ might be able, for he knew he was able, but that he was willing and he was. And he reached out in love. We'll come back to that in our application. Verse 42. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him and he was cleansed. Jesus touched the man. And as soon as he had spoken, the leprosy immediately departed from him and he was cleansed. Now we take a moment to acknowledge the authority here because that's what Mark is about. We take a minute to acknowledge the manner of Mark's expression of this healing, that it is an expression of authority. And notice, notice this. Notice how Mark speaks to the nature of this healing. Notice he does not say, and the man was healed. He anthropomorphizes the disease. I don't know if that would be the right way to describe that word. The idea there, he gave the disease human characteristics. In this case, he gave the disease a capacity to leave. Mark describes this disease as departing from him. Now, here's what I know. The disease is not a cognizant thing that got up and decided to leave the man. Right? The man was healed in medical terms. In medical terms, the disease did not part. In medical depart, in medical terms, the disease was healed. But in spiritual terms, there's nothing in the created world which can resist the power and the authority of its creator. In spiritual terms, the description of this man's healing was that Jesus spoke, the disease heard its creator, obeyed its creator, that the one who spoke the world into existence, that the one who spoke in the waters of the Red Sea parted, that the one who spoke in the rock in the wilderness brought forth water, spoke again, and this disease could do nothing but leave. Because it could do nothing against the authority of its creator. Because all power is given to Jesus in heaven and in earth. And that is what the language is expressing. That is the idea that seems to flow from the, the, the manner in which Mark speaks to this, this, this disease, which does not get healed, but it departs from him. 
It departs from the one that Colossians 1 verses 16 and 17 says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible or invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Nothing stands outside the power of its creator. Not in heaven and not on earth. And we know this. But that also leaves us in an interesting place of contrast, doesn't it? Because what do we see around us? We see a world of rebellion, don't we? Interesting. That all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist, and yet we see a world of rebellion around us. What a contrast this paints. Jesus is walking through Galilee, exercising his power over all things in heaven and in earth, exercising his authority over all things in heaven and in earth. Nevertheless, refusing to override the will of man, allowing humanity to have its choice. And with that choice comes the presence of sin, illness, and possession, and evil, and sorrow, and pain. But these things must remain as long as God sees fit to reach out to men in compassion, to compel them to exercise their will and humility before him. For if God would destroy evil today, he must destroy all of humanity that has not come to him in faith. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in this we observe the love and the wisdom and the long-suffering of our God. That though all power is given unto him in heaven and in earth, And though it is not God's will that any should perish, the solution to that perishing being that all would come to him to repentance, to exercise their will toward their creator, to submit themselves to the authority of the one who has created them, the winds and the waves, they have no choice but to obey. The demons have no choice. They cannot resist Christ's authority. No disease can stand against his decree so that when he touches this man and says, I will be thou clean, the disease departs from him. But by God's sovereign will and design, man has the capacity to resist him. In order that our submission to him might not be compelled, but rather be chosen. Not an expression just of obedience, but an expression of love. So we continue in verses 42 to 44. And he straightly charged him, that would be Jesus, uh, 43 and 44, excuse me, Jesus charging the man, and forthwith sent him away, and saith unto him, See thou say nothing to any man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Now we come to one of the most interesting things that Jesus does within the scope of his earthly ministry. Uh, We've already seen it uh, in in a sense as we've talked about the fact that Jesus silenced the demons and would not let them speak out. A very similar idea here that regularly Jesus would heal the sick and then he would instruct those who he healed that they would not announce their healing but rather go their way without fanfare and in this case that he would go Uh, to show himself to the priest to do what the Old Testament law in Leviticus 13 and 14 commanded him to do, which was to show himself to the priest so that the priest could validate that he had been healed from leprosy so that he could then be cleansed and he could reinitiate into society. And notice Christ's purpose. He says here, 
show thyself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. What did Jesus want from this? Jesus wanted people to understand who he was. Understand his authority. Now, this has always been a confusing matter, though. Why? Why would Jesus not want him to announce these things publicly? With the demons, we speculated that uh, it seems likely that that's because an association with demons is an association which no truth teller wants. But why with the man who was just healed? Jesus was not hiding his ministry, right? He was going from place to place, healing people quite openly, he was not hiding his work. He was not hiding his power. So then why is it that he regularly commanded men, it would seem, not to herald their healing to the masses? And there are many theories, once again, as to why this might be, but I think I agree with many of the early church teachings as it related to this. Chrysostom would say that Jesus wanted the focus not to be upon the miracle itself, but rather to fix men's minds and hearts upon his doctrine. And I think we, even as we explored Christ's purpose last week, that he healed people, but he, he went to preach from town to town, right? That's what he was doing. He was going to preach from town to town. We've already seen Christ's purpose was not to heal directly. This was a sign of the kingdom and that the kingdom had come, but all of it was a vehicle for him to teach them of himself, teach them of his father. This man was to be a testimony. A testimony of what? A testimony of Jesus' power. A testimony of Jesus' authority. And these things are true. But it was also intended to compel men not to seek Jesus just for the healing of the body, but to seek Jesus for the healing of the soul. Jesus' purpose was to seek and to save them that are lost. His miracles proved his ability so that those who saw it could know his power so that as they saw his power over all things in heaven and in earth that they could see the demonic possessions, the, those that were sick, those that were lame, those that were leprous, they would say, if this man can do all of these things, then why would he not have power to forgive sins also? We'll talk about that in the coming days. To this end, to tell men of the healing would draw certainly a crowd. But what kind of a crowd? Would it draw a crowd that wants to hear his preaching? Or would it draw a crowd that wants to see something fantastic? Would it draw a crowd that wants to hear the doctrine? Or would it draw a crowd that wants to be healed? How many of those who wanted to be healed, who would come to him, would, as this leper had done, humble themselves before his teaching? Would they, when confronted with the overwhelming power of the physical, his overwhelming authority over things in earth, simply try to use Jesus to heal their ailments and then set him aside as a means unto a carnal end? Or would they come to Jesus beseeching him, kneeling before him, and humble themselves before his authority and say, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And I think the conflict of responses is evident in the final verse of Mark. Why is it that Jesus may be told the man, don't make a big scene here? Well, look what we read in verse 45. But he went out and began to publish it much. So this man did not obey Jesus in this sense. He didn't do as Jesus commanded, and he went and he published what had been done. 
and to blaze abroad the matter. A very interesting way to describe it, right? This guy was not just uh, telling people as he was on his way to the temple. Uh, this guy was telling people, blazing it abroad. In so much notice that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in a desert in desert places, and they came to him from every quarter. So Jesus could no longer go into the city because there were just too many people who wanted him. Jesus actually became hindered in his purpose. Who would come out to hear him? Well, there would be a group of people that would come out to hear him. That group of people, maybe people who believed, maybe people who wanted to be healed. Later on, it will be maybe people who believed or maybe people who wanted to be fed, right? But were they the people that Jesus was really trying to reach? The people would come out of their cities into a desert place, and the people, as they came to him, he would teach them, but not an ideal way to preach to the people who would need it the most. Because the people, many of whom were not interested in his doctrine, would flood his presence with their desire for physical healing, and he could not teach and preach to those who he was trying to teach and preach to, because he couldn't enter the city any longer. So that's probably why he told this man to, 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 to keep it a little bit more on the down low. Maybe you have another thought, reason. I'm, I'm, I'd love to hear it um, if you have, have another one that, that you could share with me later. That's all we're going to talk about tonight as it relates to exposition. Let's think through a few applications this evening. First thing I'd like us to consider as we consider the heart of Christ First, a proper response to Christ's authority compels absolute humility. This leprous man entered before Jesus in the proper way, beseeching him, kneeling before him. Here was a man who understood the implications of Jesus' authority. Listen, Christian, the word of God will never be effective in your life unless it is coupled with submission. It is not enough just to know what Jesus says. We talk about this somewhat regularly. It's not enough, enough just for us to have an understanding of what Jesus says. It is not even enough for us to understand the power or the authority with which he brought it. It must be coupled with submission if it is going to have the effect that it is supposed to have. We do not come here on Sunday to judge God's word. We come here on Sunday to be judged by God's word. We do not come here to assess or to analyze God's word. We come here to be searched and to be tried and to be exposed. Why do we read the Bible? Why do we study? Why do we come to Christ? What is the manner of our coming? Certainly, any man who comes to the doctrines of Christ will find some measure of physical wellness through it. And I'm not meaning that physical healing. The man who doesn't steal, the man who doesn't murder, the man who marries a woman and then stays married to that woman, the man who treats others the way he desires to be treated, all of these things are rooted in biblical commands and in biblical morality. And whether a man believes the, the authority or the power of Jesus Christ, whether a man ever humbles himself before the authority of Jesus Christ, if he lives by those rules, he's going to find general benefit to himself. No doubt. But as long as that man stays on the throne of his own heart, he's missing the true power and the true blessing and the true potential of what is offered in Christ. And if we, among all those who are 
in this world truly want what Christ has to offer? May I describe it this way? We need to become a leper in mind. We need to become men and women who understand the absolute incapacity of ourselves. Men and women who understand that regardless of how much we know and regardless of how moral we are, that the only way we can truly be right is through Christ. Is Christ is our worth. Christ is our value. Christ is the foundation of our life, is the true meaning by which we live. And that requires us to kneel before him. Because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Second thought this evening from Mark 1, 40 to 45. All those who come to Christ will find in Christ a willing Savior. The term leper is used even in our modern English to speak of one who is an outcast. If I were to say that I uh, went to some sort of meeting and I was kind of a leper, uh, the idea there would be that I was someone on the outside looking in. I was someone that people did not engage with. For one reason or another, they decided they didn't want to be around me or they didn't uh, want to engage with me. If there was anyone in society whom Jesus would be unwilling to interact with due to his physical state, it would be the leper. And yet when the leper comes to Christ, when he expresses the humility that is due unto Christ as the creator of all things, when he acknowledged the depth of his own personal need, he found in Jesus a very willing Savior. It is not our creator who is unwilling when it comes to the context of a relationship between you and God, between me and God. We talked this morning as we thought through the nature of who is Abraham's seed of the fact as we talked very many times that God is not a God who has hidden himself from us but that he has given us a book by which he desires us to know him. That he, that this book is the testimony of God reaching out to us. That Jesus on the cross is the testimony of God reaching out to us. Christian, it is not your creator who is unwilling to have a relationship with you. It is not our creator who is unwilling to give us wisdom. It is not our creator who is unwilling to place within our heart joy and peace and contentment. It is not our creator who is unwilling to help you carry your burdens and your sorrows and your fears. It is we who are stubborn. It is we who insist that we carry our own burdens. It is we who refuse to yield the way that we want to go and our priorities and our desires and our misguided pleasures. It is we who will not allow Christ to cleanse. For indeed, if we came to him and we kneeled and we said, if thou wilt, thou canst make me, thou canst make me clean, do you know what we'd hear from our Savior? I will be thou clean. It is we who will not yield our will so that we might do His will and have His will done in us. The leper was a man who was empty. He had no solution in himself. And so he sought to Jesus as his only hope. And when he sought to Jesus as his only hope, he found in Jesus the hope that he sought. And so will all who come to Christ on His terms who will humble themselves before Christ's authority 
who will acknowledge him. And we know this. In fact, this is our memory verse of the month, isn't it? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. In all thy ways acknowledge him. What is that saying? This is saying that we respond to Christ's authority with humility. In every way that I take, I am acknowledging Christ in that way. That's humility. That is that emptiness. Not an emptiness in the sense of loneliness. Not an emptiness in the sense of despondency. That is an emptiness of self. And the Bible says that we come to him and he directs our paths. It is not that he is not willing. The question is, are we acknowledging him? Final point this evening. Don't allow separation to overwhelm compassion. We've talked about this a lot uh, in in a sense as we've thought through in Sunday school the nature of, of separation. But this is where we began our message today. Most of the people under the sound of my voice are pretty comfortable with the idea that we are called to reflect Christ's purpose. To share God's word, to hold fast to sound doctrine, to go from town to town and city to city, preaching to those people also. We stand upon it, we build our lives upon it, we plant our feet in it, we intend to stay, and none of this is a bad thing in the least. We recognize that we walk in a different direction from the world around us, that the world is heading one way, and we, by God's grace, head toward Christ, and that that generally points us in the opposite direction. We heed the Scripture's warnings that we would love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we reject those things that are in the world, namely those things that 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17 describe. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We reject those because we believe in sound doctrine and we have planted our feet in sound doctrine and we state uh, this unequivocally and we stand distinct from these impulses which drive the unbelieving world, even their moral impulses which are driven by an innate sinful desire and affinity. But Christian, God forbid that we would allow this separation to overwhelm compassion. The leper in scripture is a picture of the sin-consumed man. Not that the man with leprosy in any given age is a man who is inherently more sinful than another man, but rather the disease of leprosy is metaphorically symbolic in the scriptures for a man who has been devastated by his own sinful choices. And all around us we find those types of lepers, spiritual lepers, And what we say is, see, you said it, Pastor. He's consumed by his own spiritual choices, his own sinful choices. Men consumed by their own sinful impulses, their fault, Pastor. Yep, definitely. Now, as we think through these men who are compelled by their or consumed by their own sinful choices, by their own sinful impulses. We look around and some of these men are moral and some are not. Some of these men are driven by, uh, uh, driven by a moral sensibility of a sort. Others are absolutely immoral, but, but all driven by carnal impulses. 
Their lives are defined by those things in the world which we are warned not to love. But you know, Paul has an interesting exhortation to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5. He says this in verses 9 through 13. I wrote unto you in an epistle, not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world, but, I ha but now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or a covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Them, do ye not judge them that are within? Oops, excuse me there. But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Paul called for believers to live in separation, specifically to avoid personal fellowship with people who claimed Christ but walked contrary to Christ, to put away from themselves the wicked person who is walking contrary to sound doctrine but who claims to be walking in sound doctrine. But Paul says that command is not intended to imply that we should separate from those who are unbelievers walking contrary to Christ. For then, Paul said, ye must needs come out of the world. Now, we aren't going to engage in spiritual fellowship with unbelievers anyway. If a person is an unbeliever, there's no spiritual fellowship to be had. And that's where we talk about that concept of separation, that when the dirty is with the clean, the dirty doesn't get cleaner, the clean gets dirtier. The idea there is not that you can't interact with your neighbor who is an unbeliever. The idea is that you're not going to invite them into a place of spiritual fellowship or personal trust. You're not going to bring uh, them into a place where they are uh, directly and naturally influencing the way that you think about life because they are people who have no true bearings on truth. They have no connection with Christ. But the idea is this. How can you reach a world that you don't touch? How can you and I show people Christ if we aren't willing to stand before them? How can men know that we are Christ's disciples if we won't get near them? How can men know Christ's compassion if they don't see that compassion in us? The old saying goes, you may be the only Bible an unbeliever ever reads. If your neighbor is never going to set foot in this church, if your coworker is never going to pick up, much less understand your King James Bible, then how are they going to ever come to know Christ if you aren't willing to be the one to show it to them? Last week we talked about Christ's purpose being our purpose. And that his purpose was that the gospel would go forth through his lips. Jesus saw this leper on this day and the Bible says that he was moved with compassion. And he reached his hand and he touched that leper. And you know what's interesting is that the Bible says he touched the leper. And then after he touched the leper, he spoke. And the leper was healed. It was not on the touch that the leper was healed, it was on the word. And yet, even though it was on the touch and not the word, that the leper was healed. And we're going to see this same idea again in Mark 2. 
he still touched him. Now, the doctrines of personal and ecclesiastical separation are the hallmarks of sound doctrine. They are written all over the scriptures. The doctrines of separation call us to remain unspotted from the world, to guard our hearts from sin, to count faithful brethren as the ones who hold true influence in our lives, that we be not unequally yoked with unbelievers, that two do not walk together unless they be agreed. But what the doctrines of separation do not require is that we reject those in need who are around us, or that we look at them with contempt or disdain or judgment, that we look at them as lepers, in the idiomatic way. Much to the contrary, the call is that we reach out to them in love, reflecting the same compassion that we see here, while resting nevertheless upon the authority which Christ has given us by our association with him in the world, but not of the world. And may this be so in our lives this evening. That we are not just in tune with the purpose of Christ, that the gospel would go forth from our lips, but that we carry, uh, not, not just carrying Christ's authority through sound doctrine into the ears of the hearers, not just living out Christ's authority in our own obedience to that sound doctrine, but may we also be in tune to his heart. A heart of compassion. A heart that came to heal the brokenhearted. A heart that came to set the captives free a heart that was not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. May Christ's heart be our heart as well this evening. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.